Welcome to the latest edition of the MindGut Conversation, the interview series about topics related to the health of the brain, the gut, and the environment. Today's guest is Dr. Matthew Hill, who is an associate professor at the departments of cell biology, anatomy, and psychiatry at the Hotchkiss Brain Institute at the University of Calgary in Alberta. Dr. Hill is an internationally recognized authority on the interactions between the endocannabinoid system and stress and has played an important role in the recent legalization of cannabis in Canada. Dr. Hill, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So if you start out with um, just the, the simplest term, um, what, what are endocannabinoids? So endocannabinoids are kind of the body's own version of molecules like uh, THC from cannabis. And THC is the psychoactive constituent of cannabis. Um, and we now know that THC exerts its effects on uh, the brain and the body and physiological processes through activating what we call a cannabinoid receptor um, that we have all distributed through our body and our brain. Um, but that receptor is not obviously normally activated by THC for receptor and the opiate receptor for cannabinoids. So a, the cannabinoid an ancient receptor. system has evolved an evolution to, for, for which benefits? So with the opioids, we know it is about pain, uh, endogenous control of and, and modulation of pain. What about the endocannabinoids? What is their uh, evolutionary developed role? So it's actually similar to how we kind of knew what the opiate system was probably going to regulate based on the effects of human use of, of opiates like morphine. Um, not surprisingly, once the endocannabinoid system was discovered, one of the more important things that it was found to regulate was uh, feeding behavior. And this is consistent with the kind of relatively well-established effects of cannabis use triggering food intake. Um, and through a fair amount of work that's been done in animals all the way down the evolutionary chain, even down to sea cucumbers, it's actually been found that endocannabinoids are really important for um, promoting food intake and driving feed, feeding behavior. From the context of what I study, stress seems to be another process that's really well regulated by endocannabinoids. And so again, it's, it's very well conserved across the evolutionary chain. Um, we see even in rodent studies that endocannabinoids get released in the brain in response to stress, and they are really important for kind of um, promoting stress recovery and turning off um, neural circuits in the brain that become engaged by aversive stimuli. So endocannabinoids help to calm those back down and help people kind of return to a normative basal state. Um, and similar to opiates, there also seems to be an important role for pain regulation. So endocannabinoids get mobilized by noxious stimuli. And they also, like um, endorphins, act to kind of turn off pain circuits in the brain and reduce um, aspects of pain sensation, but especially the emotional component of pain as well. So, I mean, uh, considering these, this range of beneficial effects, it's, it's kind of surprising that, you know, research has sort of been blocked over the last several decades um, to really understand this, this, these compounds better and potentially even well, I mean, always two approaches. One, to stimulate the effective release in people that don't have the, the right uh, endocannabinoid response and possibly developing medications that would, that would stimulate the system. Why has there been such a, a standstill in, in the research in this area? Um, I mean, the cannabinoid system is relatively young in, in kind of the long-scale reference point of a lot of the scientific biological systems we study. Uh, so it was really only discovered in the 90s. And at that point, it kind of was in, in the hotbed of the 
the, the war on drugs era in the United States, especially. Um, so it took a while to define molecules that were able to act on the cannabinoid receptor that were not um, schedule one drugs. So initially, obviously, THC would have made the most sense. But that's a schedule one drug. It's very hard to do research with that. As more kind of advances were made in the end of cannabinoid system, um, drugs that weren't psychoactive or didn't have the same effects as THC were developed, and they've given us a lot more utility in terms of moving forward in term, uh, to understand more about the physiological roles of the system. Only recently um, have they really figured out, it's pretty much been in the last 15 years, that a lot of the, the pathways um, regulating endocannabinoid production and uh, degradation have really been mapped out. And so there are drugs now that have been developed that don't act like THC, where they don't act directly on the receptor. They act more like what I would call like an endocannabinoid SSRI, where they either boost endocannabinoid levels by preventing um, their metabolism or enhance synthesis in some capacity. And those drugs do look like they may have some utility for some things. We've been um, starting some research with collaborators in humans to look at um, if we see the similar effects. And it does, there is a fair amount of converging evidence now that it does really look like elevating endocannabinoids in humans has a a nice kind of anti-stress, anti-anxiety, anti-fear role in humans. Um, hasn't panned out so well for the studies that have been done looking at pain, um, but that may have been the nature of the study that was done so far. And some of the newer clinical stuff that they're looking at with these uh, drugs that boost endocannabinoids are to look at things like tick-related disorders like Tourette's and stuff. Um, I've heard you speak about um, the, the two main components of cannabinoids, the THC and the CBD, and um, I was kind of surprised about hearing your opinion about CBD, which is sort of the big rage now um, in the supplement industry, and um, seems like everybody um, takes some form of CBD now for sleep or well-being. Do you want to just expand on that, on, on, on those two main components of, of cannabis? So THC, is we really know a fair amount about THC because it seems to be the component of cannabis that does actually activate CB1 receptors. So THC is an agonist that will um, bind to and activate cannabinoid receptors in the brain and throughout the body. And so we have a good understanding of how it impacts physiology. And, and like I said, with similar to morphine, the effects of THC have given us a lot of insight into what biological processes we think that endocannabinoids would regulate, and that's why we've stimulated um, that arm of research so much based on what we know about THC. CBD, on the other hand, is, is quite a, a strange molecule. It's, it doesn't activate cannabinoid receptors, which is one of the reasons why it doesn't produce frank psychoactivity the same way that THC does. And to be completely honest, it's not exactly clear how it exerts much biological effect because there's a lot of controversy over what it does. There seems to be some work that has suggested it could interact with the serotonin system and promote serotonin activity, and that may relate to some of the purported anti-anxiety effects of it. Um, and there's some other work which suggests it might enhance the denosine signaling. Uh, kind of in the opposite manner of caffeine. And that's kind of um, how I think there might be some of the reports of the kind of sedative and somnogenic effects of CBD may relate to its ability to enhance adenosine signaling because that's kind of the opposite mechanism of what you'd see with something like caffeine, which promotes a lot of arousal. But to be honest, um, the, the relationship between the hype about CBD and the general public and the reality of what the scientific information says do not align at all. Um, and it's really actually kind of interesting because I've been in the cannabinoid field for about 20 years almost doing work here. And 
no one cared about CBD at all. Like it really was not something that had been studied much up until maybe about eight or nine years ago. And then all of a sudden in the last three or four years, the general public has just jumped on this bandwagon about it. And CBD is really interesting because uh, it's not clear what it actually can do yet. The amount of claims that come out of the general public of what it can cure is, is quite alarming. Um, and I'm not sure where this all came from, but the problem you get with something like CBD is uh, as can happen with a lot of things when there's a huge amount of hype around them is humans are obviously really subject to expectancy bias. And so if you get told by 20 people that you know and trust that CBD really improves your pain and helps you sleep and takes down anxiety and does all these wonderful things, uh, it's hard to strip that bias away for if you took something and expected that outcome to happen. I mean, we know this through years of placebo effects in humans that if they really assume that they're getting an active treatment, that's going to have a benefit on them they will experience it. And it's not to say that there's not any biological effect of CBD, but certainly a lot of the early stuff that's been done in humans more recently, um, the early work that's finally coming out now that we're starting to do clinical trials, we're not seeing a lot of really strong signals of CBD in isolation. And I think one of the other things that, that, that there's a huge mismatch on is the little bit of clinical work that's been done where we do see signals of CB, CBD really uses whopping doses of CBD. Like, you know, in the gram range um, for someone who say 70 uh, kilograms, you'd be taking somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand to 2000 milligrams. Um, and yet what people take in the general public can kind of a health and wellness perspective is really a, a trivial amount. I mean, they're, they're more often taking somewhere about um, more around 50 milligrams. And a lot of this actually has to do with the cost of how expensive CBD is to buy in an oil form or, or a gel capsule. I did a an analysis based on what it would cost to buy a, a, a vial of CBD oil for someone my weight and size, how much they would have to take on a daily basis. And it would actually cost almost $100 a day for me to take a level of CBD that would be equivalent to what has been found to have any effect in a clinical trial. And I think the other thing that people don't realize is, uh, unlike THC, which when you take it orally actually has pretty good bioavailability in the gut, CBD actually does not have good bioavailability. And so most studies have actually found that if someone eats um, like a CBD uh, infused product of food or, or oil in some capacity, only about four to 10% of that CBD is actually getting into the blood. Um, and so when you start thinking of the fact that people are taking much lower doses than what's actually been found to have any kind of clinical benefit and the low rates of absorption through the gut into the actual blood, the bioavailability of it is quite low. Um, and so that makes it even more confusing why there's so much public opinion that this is a really beneficial molecule because now we're looking at biological activity of a compound that's in such a low range, it seems almost unlikely it would even be doing anything. Yeah, this is really remarkable. I mean, the, 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 the contrast to what you just said to what, what I hear on a, on a daily basis from, you know, from, from patients and, and, and even researchers at, yeah. at, at UCLA, um, it's, it, it, it couldn't be more more different than you know uh, than, than what you explained, and and I just wanted so a couple of things came up. One is uh, you mentioned something about the expectations, so and and the placebo response is you uh, you would you would think that um, the release of endogenous uh, of of endocannabinoids might potentially play a role in the in the placebo response. So in theory, it it, it could be that some of these benefits by a presumed cannabinoid CBD is really mediated by the endocannabinoid system in, in terms of a, a placebo response. 
you think that's reasonable? Is there any evidence that endocannabinoids, like opioids, play a role in the... Uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it certainly seems possible. There is some work that has found that um, variance in endocannabinoid function in humans has some relationship to the magnitude of placebo responses that people um, exhibit. And again, there is a lot of functional crosstalk between endorphins and endocannabinoids. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, it, if, it's, if it's found that it really plays a significant role in the placebo responses, because that does make sense. Um, and there, I mean, again, there is also some suggestion that CBD may inadvertently elevate endocannabinoid levels in some way. And again, this is possibly something that would happen at much higher doses than most people are taking, but there is a kind of the way that you're describing it, I think is interesting because you might have a little bit of a, a native endogenous release anyways from, from the placebo effect and then have a compound that could augment that if you're taking it at appreciable enough doses to interact with um, the production of endocannabinoids or their metabolism. So it certainly is possible that there could be some overlap there that uh, people haven't noticed as much because the effects are actually in the same direction, like mm. you're saying, as we expect with an endocannabinoid response. So the other question that came up, um, and, and I think we've talked about this before as well, the, this, uh, this discrepancy between um, measurable blood levels, plasma levels, and, uh, and the intake of, of CBD, um, it's kind of a little bit reminiscent of what happens with some of the polyphenols um, that, you know, these large molecules that are thought to act as antioxidants, but very low blood levels are measured after, after oral ingestion. And um, could, it, could it be that, um, that, that CBD molecules are basically not absorbed to a significant degree in the small intestine, get down to the, um, the gut microbiota in the large intestine and broken down into metabolites that may mediate some of these effects. Has that been looked at at all or is, is that? No, I mean, that's actually a really interesting idea because yeah, if it's not getting out of the gut, it may just it stay in relatively high concentrations going through the gut into the various compartments of the intestine and the colon. Um, and I mean, the structure of CBD also is, is, is amenable to it being an antioxidant. It, it should be able to free radical scavenge to some degree. Um, and we do know that there is effects of lipid molecules like CBD on gut microbiome levels. I actually don't know of any work that, I mean, there are, there is work of looking at people who, who use cannabis and how it might impact their gut microbiome. And there is certainly a literature about endocannabinoids and interactions with the gut microbiome. But from a CBD perspective, I've not actually seen anything I can think of off the top of my head that has looked at whether CBD might have an effect on the gut microbiome and the fact that oral administration may be different than, for example, in a lot of the, the preclinical rodent work, it's, it's injected. And so you bypass gut absorption in that route, and you may not see a signal there that you would see um, from, I mean, humans aren't generally injecting CBD, they're orally um, ingesting it for the most part. So the effects that some humans may have could actually be due to accumulation of CBD in the gut and having a, an impact on the microbiota. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, so, I mean, coming back to, to, the, to the role, like your area of interest, uh, to the interactions of cannabinoids with the stress response. So, uh, you indicated that um, it's, it's, it has an attenuating role on the acute stress response, um, but there's also evidence that this doesn't really happen the same way or it, it, it actually turns into... A, a maladaptive way with, with chronic stress. Can, can you um, expand on that? 
Yeah, so, um, so in the acute sense, the, what we think is going on is, from all the evidence we've seen so far, we think that there's kind of ongoing constitutive production of endocannabinoids in a lot of these circuits in the brain that kind of keep stress and um, like emotional states like anxiety or rest. So that when there's no threat in our environment, we're not in a state of high vigilance or anxiety. Uh, and what we know from the acute stress data is what happens is in very rapidly in response to acute stress, there's an abrupt drop in endocannabinoid function that actually facilitates the activation of the stress response. But then once the stress response occurs, endocannabinoids elevate and actually almost overshoot to calm the stress response back down. And it's in that manner, it's almost a closed loop circuit. So you kind of have endocannabinoids, they drop for stress, and then they come back for stress recovery, and you go back to normal. Under conditions of chronic stress, however, what seems to happen is the system collapses in some manner. So the receptors seem to downregulate, so you have less cannabinoid receptors on neurons in the brain. Um, and what you also seem to lose is that kind of overshoot after stress that helps you calm back down. So the system over time with chronic stress just seems to kind of progressively collapse and function less and less effectively. And given that it's so important um, for that recovery phase of stress and acting as kind of a, a buffer that attenuates everything and brings us back down to a normal state, if that system isn't functioning properly anymore, you can imagine how that would help contribute to these states of heightened stress and anxiety, which seem to happen under conditions of chronic exposure, where the system doesn't really recalibrate anymore. And an individual can kind of spiral almost in a feed forward manner to be in a state of chronic stress, even if that at that point they're removed from whatever the threat in front of them or the, the trigger that's driving the stress, they just kind of exist in a state of chronic anxiety, at least for a sustained period after being stressed out for so long. Um, and a lot of the animal work has found that if we um, just kind of, if we inhibit the, the breakdown of endocannabinoids and clamp them at a high level so that they stay elevated and we, we um, expose animals to chronic stress, what we see in that situation is that the animals don't kind of, um, they don't have this persistent elevation and anxiety. They don't have a lot of the structural changes in the brain that we see from stress. And it almost seems like having a high endocannabinoid load in the brain if you can clamp that with a, with a pharmacological tool like a drug and keep endocannabinoids at a high level, you can actually mitigate that kind of waning of the system over time and help prevent some of these deleterious effects of chronic stress. So this would indicate that it's really um, that chronic stress compromises the, the, the release of the production rather than desensitizing the receptors. Is that yeah, it's unclear exactly the, the, the step nature of the process. Um, I would say when we look at it as a snapshot after chronic stress, everything seems to have collapsed at that point. And we're not sure if maybe there was like the system was trying to overshoot to calm um, the brain down and calm the body down. And in the process of doing that, desensitize the receptor. And then as a consequence, the ligand also goes down. We're not exactly sure about the, the temporal process of it. We know that under the acute system, under acute stress, it's very dynamic. And so it's really uh, effective at turning everything off and bringing us back down. And under chronic conditions, that doesn't happen anymore. Um, but it, I would say the net effect on the system is that it kind of becomes dysfunctional and it collapses to some degree. So it's not working as good as it should anymore. I mean, there's, there's one, one clinical condition that, that I see a lot of patients for it's called cyclical vomiting syndrome. And it, it, as you know, it kind of overlaps with the cannabis uh, hyperemesis syndrome where um, people either 
under chronic stress uh, develop a, a cyclical pattern of, of nausea and vomiting, intractable, um, major consequences on this patient's life and um, uh, you know, quality of life. Um, but the interesting thing is that a very similar picture can be triggered by chronic cannabis consumption. Mm -hmm. um, so a really pointing, and if somebody has these attacks, um, smoking pot, for example, or you know, taking THC and other forms is, is usually quite effective. So somehow it, it really points that these, these, um, this pattern of the brain-gut axis in terms of chronic nausea and vomiting is related to, to, the, to the cannabinoid system, to the endocannabinoid system. Yeah, I mean, that wouldn't surprise me at all because um, there has been a fair amount of work that has demonstrated that endocannabinoids are really effective at reducing nausea. This seems to be both through some kind of brainstem mechanisms as well as some cortical effects. Um, so if someone has uh, the cyclic vomiting syndrome you are describing, which might be triggered by stress, it's possible that those people um, may have maybe on the lower end of uh, endocannabinoid function, which may make them more vulnerable because this kind of endogenous anti-nauseant system isn't working properly. And if they're really stressed out, that might actually compromise it even more. So if something does trigger a vomiting episode, for some reason, they don't have that ability to turn it off properly anymore. And so it could just spiral out of control. I think, and it's interesting that you do see a similar uh, clinical phenotype with, with can, uh, like cannabis hyperemesis, because the thought in that situation is that, again, these, it's usually only found in people who use excessive amounts of cannabis. And when you, if someone is using a, a really like a lot of cannabis for a long period of time, it's it's probable that they are also going to compromise their own endocannabinoid system. So the receptors will probably downregulate. The system won't be functioning as well anymore. And so again, if that system isn't functioning properly and the receptors aren't there for THC to bind to even um, to turn off the nausea response, it again may result in this kind of progressive um, escalation where vomiting starts and it just triggers this. Uh, feed forward um, process that isn't isn't turned off anymore by a cannabinoid mechanism because the system isn't functioning in a manner that allows it to. During the the the, the last talk that I uh, listened uh, to that, that that you gave in a at a meeting in uh, uh, Calgary, you you gave this really interesting uh, breakdown in the differential effects in terms of positive and negative effects of cannabinoids. Uh, during the different life stages. Do you, do you want to say a few words about this negative, I mean, as far as I can remember this, the negative effects are sort of much greater in, in a younger age, whereas positive effects seem to be dominating in, at, at, at an older age. Yeah, I would definitely say when you look at kind of the putative risk benefit um, outcomes of cannabis use, there's definitely an age effect. So, I mean, we can look at um, we know that the, uh, in utero that the developing fetal brain um, has an abundance of cannabinoid receptors. There's been a fair amount of work from people like Yasmin Hurd at Mount Sinai who have um, examined how prenatal exposure to cannabinoids can affect some developing brain circuits. Um, there's a lot more work that's starting to boom on that now because there's been a growing recognition that a lot of pregnant women actually use cannabis as a means to uh, mitigate nausea, kind of consistent with the previous uh, comment we were just talking about. Um, and I think in Washington state, they found almost one in five women who were pregnant were using cannabis as a means to regulate nausea, which is really quite surprising because we don't know that much, but um, it does seem like there are some um, adverse effects that would 
would emerge from that. It's not on the same scale as what we know about alcohol, for example. So you don't seem to have a lot of facial facial dysmorphologies or kind of very profound effects on cognitive function. But um, there certainly do seem to be from these larger cohort studies of, of pregnant mothers who consumed cannabis. Um, there are some effects on attention, um, possibly some uh, greater likelihood to use substances in in adolescence and, uh, and later. But so again, a developing brain has a lot of cannabinoid receptors that could impact the way it develops. There's very little known about kind of juvenile or children just because I think outside of the epilepsy space, that would just never happen. Um, it's very rare that kids are exposed to cannabis or cannabis byproducts kind of pre-teenage years um, outside of an in utero situation. So there's really almost nothing known about that. Um, but then we hit adolescence and adolescence is another weird period because we did, that is when the majority of people who initiate cannabis use are going to is kind of in the mid to late adolescent period. Um, and this is a period where the brain is still developing. And we have very mixed messages, to be honest, from what the data in humans has said. It's very confusing um, to kind of do retrospective studies, but some studies have shown that there could be an effect on brain development if someone is using a an excess amount of cannabis during adolescence again. And what's interesting is, regardless of whether those, what the nature of those effects are, if we look at adults in the developed brain situation, we really don't see those effects at all. So again, um, obviously to err on the side of caution, it's best for people to not use any substances during development or adolescence. This is um, perhaps a bit naive, just because it's something that's going to happen. But certainly from what we've seen and what the animal, the animal and human literature has told us is there's a much greater likelihood of there being an adverse outcome um, of someone using cannabis during the adolescent years, simply because the brain is still in this plastic phase where it's developing, especially the frontal cortical circuits. Now, as we go into adulthood, um, the neuroimaging data, most of which has actually come out of Colorado from Ken Hutchinson's lab, um, where he's actually done a lot of really detailed, carefully controlled work, has found that even in adults that are kind of daily, uh, regular users of cannabis, they've not found any impact on, on brain, um, uh, structural brain changes or brain morphology in any way. And outside of kind of transient changes we see during the intoxicated period where, say, short-term memory becomes compromised, there also doesn't seem to be long-term cognitive effects that have been documented in people who use cannabis regularly. There's a small subset of people who use it at a very excessive level um, that may have some adverse effects associated with that, but it's also hard to tease that out because this is also a population that has a lot of other stuff going on in their life with stress or alcohol consumption. So it's hard to ascribe any effects we've seen there to cannabis specifically. But then we go even older into kind of um, the age population and there isn't a lot of work that has come out yet, um, but it's really interesting because the animal work shows kind of what you were alluding to when we uh, started this line of, of, of discussion, um, that it is the opposite of what we see. I mean, the younger the brain, the more developed the, or developing the brain is, the more vulnerable it seems to be to adverse effects, including um, impacts from cannabis, yet the aged brain actually doesn't seem to show that. And some of the animal work has shown that even uh, administration of THC, which in a younger animal might impair memory and impair some cognitive processes, actually might actually facilitate them in age. And the thought is that um, there is, the aging brain kind of progressively develops um, some degree of inflammation as, as the whole body does. It's this kind of inflammaging thing that has become recognized in the last 10 to 20 years, that this is a process that just happens with normative aging. And there is a fair amount of evidence that endocannabinoids and, and uh, components of cannabis like THC, which will activate cannabinoid receptors, 
have the ability to kind of curb some effects of inflammation and they seem to possess some anti-inflammatory properties. They can bring down um, levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. They can quiet down uh, microglia, which are kind of the resident immune cells in the brain from being in a hyper-inflammatory state. And so the thought is actually that some of the cognitive decline that occurs with aging may relate to this progressive inflammation that's occurring. Um, and cannabinoids may actually be able to reduce that to a degree where it may actually um, produce beneficial outcomes. Now, this has not been well translated to the human population yet because there's been virtually no research that's been done um, on aging populations and the impacts of cannabis. But the animal data has been consistent enough that I think it's now triggering um, enough interest in this space that I imagine we're going to start seeing studies that look at this, especially now that the, the kind of floodgates have started to come down. Certainly in Canada, with legalization, flood, the barriers for research have reduced quite a bit. And now as we're seeing across the individual states that have gone into a full legalized, uh, full legalization and allow um, access to cannabis, research is at least becoming a little easier in those states, even though in controlled settings, it's still hard because at a federal level, the DEA will still schedule it. Um, it's a, at least it's easier to study populations who use cannabis on a regular basis. And so my guess is that in the next five years, we're gonna have a lot more information um, on certainly the effects on the aging population as, as well as perhaps I imagine a lot more clarity about the potential adverse impacts on the younger generations that are using it as well. Uh, I mean, this, this concept that it, that it has this beneficial effect on, on this low-grade inflammation, which is now implicated by, by, by people, by a wide range of people, including the functional medicine people, as being sort of the common denominator for many chronic illnesses from, um, you know, chronic pain and um, uh, metabolic syndrome and um, uh, depression, that there's a potential treatment of that low-grade inflammation um, with, with uh, cannabis uh, products or um, medications derived from that. I mean, that, it's really intriguing to think about that. Yeah, and I think, I mean, one of the things that's actually really interesting as well is, uh, um, and it's something I think the field is, is starting to kind of recognize it at a broader level is that a lot of these conditions like the medical conditions that people use cannabis for and I think this is somewhat true in, in an aging population as well um, the main effect that, that may actually mediate a lot of the benefit that people claim from using cannabis may actually boil down to sleep um, because a lot of the disease states that people use cannabis in where they report benefit certainly things like chronic pain chronic inflammatory diseases things like colitis and inflammatory bowel disease um, multiple sclerosis PTSD, these are the, uh, the primary disease states where people report benefit from. And all of these disease states are associated with disturbed sleep patterns. And we know that a for at least a, a fair amount of people, they, they use cannabis or cannabinoids as kind of somnogenic agents that help them sleep at night. Um, and there is a research that's starting to bubble up in this area now that has tried to start looking at understanding how cannabinoids can impact sleep processes. And I think as well, when we look at an aging population, we know that as, as humans get older, sleep quality kind of shifts, uh, sleep architecture changes, people may not have the same quality of sleep that they had had when they were younger. And again, that, you know, we know that sleep deprivation or, or poor sleep habits relate to various poor health outcomes, including things like inflammation. And so it's, it, it's kind of curious to think about, you know, perhaps some of the benefit that is derived from cannabis, and if this is a real thing in the aging population, some of it may actually come from also um, helping to correct disturbed sleep patterns, and that in and of itself may help to reduce um, some of the adverse effects that they see and provide some of the benefit. I mean, we certainly see this in, in the chronic pain studies. 
uh, in the sense that you know people who use cannabinoids or cannabis to manage chronic pain often um, will say, you know, I still am in pain. It's not like it's obliterated my pain. I'm just more functional now and I don't, it doesn't affect me as much and I'm able to live my life easier. And so it really makes you kind of wonder about what it is that the, the mechanism of how it's providing this benefit is because it's clearly not like, you know, it, it's not a robust analgesic. It certainly has some analgesic properties, but it's not eliminating pain. Um, and yet it's still allowing people to function at a much better level. And I think, I, I, I personally do believe that a lot of this relates to um, improved sleep function. And in something like PTSD, we certainly seem to, that, that seems to be where the meat of the signal is. Um, out of the kind of small trials that have been done by the Canadian military at this point, the big signal you see with cannabinoids and PTSD is that it, it shuts down nightmares during sleep and it improves sleep quality so that um, the individuals are just able to feel better and function better. And that's really, that's really amazing. I mean, there's, you know, listening to you, I mean, you realize how many misconceptions and, 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 and lack of uh, knowledge and understanding is out there in this whole uh, cannabis field. Yeah, um, it's unfortunate. And, yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate. But also, I think, I mean, the, the potential for um, looking at diseases, I mean, particularly mental diseases in a, in a, in a different way and, and coming up with different treatments is, is really enormous. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, we won't know until all these studies have been done. It's, 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 it's sort of a tragedy that, you know, because of the war on drugs in the U.S., this whole research effort has been frozen for the last, I don't know, two, two decades, probably. At least. I mean, I would say almost since the inception of NIH, pretty much, it's, it's been a heavily regulated substance. And, um, and I have colleagues who do psychopharmacology research in humans, and a lot, like there's, there's only a handful of labs that... Um, are able to administer THC or, or, or cannabis. And a lot of them almost joke that it's actually easier to give people amphetamine or opiates in a clinical setting just because they are scheduled differently um, than it is cannabis, even though the potential risks associated with those substances go up dramatically. So it is, it's a strange kind of aberration um, as, to, as to why cannabis is scheduled the way it is, especially, I mean, there's, there's obviously some, some political history that has tied in there, but um, it, I, I do agree. I think it's very unfortunate how much it stifled the research community. Um, I've heard some voices that have said that, um, you know, with the ongoing opioid crisis now in the, in the U.S., and I, I don't know to what degree you have a similar problem in Canada, that, that the use of cannabis might actually help to, um, you know, decrease the, the, the problem and the, and, the, and the risk for, you know, these deleterious side effects of, of, of the opioid abuse. Do you, do you agree with that? Um, I'm intrigued by it. I think that there's something there that needs more study. I mean, a lot of this is based on epidemiological studies, which I think are, they're giving us a signal that I think we can chase from an experimental approach and actually start testing because um, what, uh, what you're alluding to, I believe, is this, this um, epidemiological research that has found that looking at the, the amount of opiate overdose deaths that they see uh, in a state-by-state -state level, the year that a state goes legal for cannabis, almost immediately you start to see declines in opiate overdose deaths. And this has been relatively consistent across several states that have actually um, undergone full legalization. And so the thought was that having cannabis as, a, uh, as an option for, um, an accessible option for people to use, that there may be either some substitution that's occurring or some opiate tapering that's occurring. And um, sorry, there's a bit of noise in the background. Um, and so there has been some experimental studies that have been started on this. Actually, most of them are happening in California. So 
Ziva Cooper, who is now the head of the Cannabis Research Institute at UCLA. She's done some really interesting detailed work looking at um, uh, opiate doses and uh, providing THC at the same time and seeing if people report uh, similar levels of analgesia. And she's found that yes, if you if you give people kind of sub-threshold doses of cannabinoids and sub-threshold doses of opiates, they see effects that um, would suggest that it's possible that uh, cannabinoids might be able to, um, if they are given as a supplement with opiates, they may be able to pro produce similar levels of, of outcomes, perhaps analgesic benefits. But by having lower doses of opiates on board, you may not see the escalation that occurs in people who go into a problematic use pattern. Um, or also, uh, which would in turn hopefully reduce overdoses. There's also been some animal work that has looked at this and there's a group down at UCSD now run by Mike Taff. And so he's actually done some really interesting work where he's looked at animal self-administration of oxycodone. Uh, he had a paper that just came out a few weeks ago and he showed that if you let animals, if they were pre-exposed to THC vapor, so they were put in vapor chambers and uh, they became intoxicated by THC vapor and then you let them self-administer oxycodone, that animals that have been given access to THC actually voluntarily self-administered less opiates than those that happened, that hadn't. So I would say at an experimental level, there's actually some early signals that are suggesting that there may actually be some benefit here where cannabinoids may actually be able to taper opiate doses. Um, I, I, these obviously need to be done at kind of larger scale studies, but I, I find it encouraging that the early stuff that's coming out actually is in agreement with these epidemiological findings, which I think when you put together into a larger package creates a much more encouraging picture. Yeah, so this has really been a fascinating conversation which we could continue for a while. Um, one, one last question. Um, so you've played an important role in the legalization discussions and, and, and process in Canada. Any negative aspects to legalization, either in the U.S. or in, 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 in certain states in the U.S. or in Canada? Um, I mean, the joke I always have is I say, uh, you know, Canada really is the first country in the Western world to go full federal legalization. So I say we're the first real experiment, but I say all the individual states were all the pilot experiments that led up to it. And so there certainly was a fair amount of consultation with the Canadian government with representatives from the states that had gone legal to try and figure out what worked and what didn't work. And because every state in the United States that has gone legal has done it slightly different than the other states, it does provide a, a little bit of comparison to see what works. Colorado being the first state which went fully legal in kind of almost an entirely unregulated manner. Um, there were, I wouldn't say there was a lot of detrimental outcomes that came from that, but there certainly were problems that occurred that were easy to control if you did things differently. So for example, um, one of the things that seemed to happen in Colorado, and while it wasn't at a massive level, it was noticeable, is that there were um, what you would call, I guess, not overdoses, but like uh, overconsumption of cannabis through edibles because there wasn't proper educational approaches. People didn't know what they were getting. They didn't understand timelines associated with the differences if someone vapes or smokes cannabis, they get high in about two to three minutes. If someone eats cannabis in an oral format, it takes about an hour to an hour and a half. And so people were kind of eating it, not getting high, and then eating more because they didn't think they had enough. And then it would hit them and they would have these profound um, effects where they, some of them would end up hospitalizing themselves because they thought they were dying. Um, and so I think education and understanding edibles is, uh, is a tricky one. Canada actually did not legalize edibles when they legalized cannabis. It was only flour and oil that was legalized and edibles are now on the roster to become legalized as of uh, October of this year in 2019. And the thought was because they needed to figure out how to manage 
the problems of things that it associated in, in Colorado. I mean, another issue was a lot of the edibles in Colorado were kind of made into like gummy bears and candy looking things that were very appealing to children. So there were a few incidences where kids um, had got a hold of them, eaten a whole bunch of them and ended up in the hospital. Some of them in, in pretty bad condition where they were kind of essentially in a comatose state for several days because of the, the level of THC that had um, kind of infused into their body from consuming these edibles. And so the Canadian government, I think, is taking some a bit more caution with like how much THC is allowed in an edible to try and prevent overdosing um, as much as you can. I say overdosing in quotation marks because um, obviously you can't fatally overdose on cannabis the way you can on opiates. Um, but I think that's one aspect of it. They've also had a very strict regulation around advertising of cannabis, which I do think is probably a good thing. Um, I don't, I mean, people know, everyone in Canada knows cannabis went legal and it's not really hard to figure out where to access it from if you want to get it. And we know through years of research that advertising in the context of even junk food, but also with alcohol and tobacco really targets younger populations and has an adverse effect on the amount of consumption that occurs. And so I'm supportive of the fact that I think that limited amounts of advertising should be allowed because I do think that if you open the floodgates on that, you do increase the likelihood that problems will emerge with um, excess consumption and certainly in younger populations. Um, I, I, I mean, the kind of the joke that they had when we hit the six month mark post legalization was that cannabis legalization is this generation's Y2K in the sense that it had a huge amount of hype going into it that they all, oh, you know, a lot of people kind of uh, pearl clutching and fear mongering about all the disasters that would happen. I mean, six months into legalization, you could just, anyone who didn't know could come to Canada, you'd never be able to tell the difference. It's, it's not like anything has actually really changed here. We haven't seen changes in motor vehicle accidents. We haven't really, I mean, all the data that's been released by Health Canada has suggested that we haven't seen much of a transition at all, actually, post legalization. That may in part be due to the fact that pre-legalization, the country had kind of liberalized cannabis quite a bit. And I think that is true in a lot of the states as well that went legal. There was clearly a liberalization that led up to it. Um, and so it's kind of not an exact clean pre-post analysis because you're looking at a culture where there was a fair amount of cannabis use beforehand. But I think the reality is that um, legalization really isn't having a, a significant impact on a lot of health outcomes or problems in society. And in fact, the, the criminality associated with um, having a prohibition market or a prohibition system where cannabis is illegal is far more detrimental. I mean, that was a main motivating factor for legalization in Canada was that the harms of, of prohibition, certainly on marginalized and racialized populations, which were being um, targeted in Canada, um, as they are in the States as well, more so than um, kind of affluent and Caucasian populations, uh, was a major problem. And so I think the removal of that and the removal of the harms associated with a prohibition model and kind of pushing people into a criminal justice system, I think will outweigh any of the, the potential adverse effects of legalization. I, from a public health standpoint, I think that argument has a lot of weight to it. So, Okay, so we have come to the end of um, our allotted time. Thank you so much, Dr. Hill, for this fascinating conversation. I'm, I'm sure listeners will, will be very interested and will probably love to hear more about this topic um, and um, I'm looking forward to interact with you scientific level in the in the future. Thanks Thank a lot you of very much. Time.